Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Getting His Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for this coming Saturday, August 29th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, and I have TruthFids here with us once again to present part five of our walk through his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Truthfids, how are we today? Thank you for being here. Yeah, great, thanks. Uh, I've been looking forward to this one because this is the um, Black Hebrews' favorite one, the description of Christ, right? And if you see any channel, it's spammed over again that his hair was like wool. That's, that's all you'll see, constantly spammed. Along with the other two that we already addressed, that, um, there's that one verse where Solomon says he's black. And, you know, we went over that. That it should say that he's sunburnt or swervy. That, that's just an unfortunate 16th century way that poets described the color of skin when you're in the sun. Right. And the other one was Job, where he says, you know, look at me. I'm withered in disease. My skin's black. And those two verses and the description of Christ's hair, they repeat over and over again. And unfortunately, whites who know nothing about the Bible, they actually start to believe it. But um, if you just spend one minute and you know a little bit of the Bible, you can easily destroy these arguments and, you know, flush them away. So hopefully we'll um, get into this. Um, yeah, so the point 14, I believe we're on, Jesus was white. So, yeah, do you, do you want to start, or should I? Well, well I will, and, and we'll discuss this um, passage. What We can discuss the first part of the passage first that way, and, and I'm sure that you have a lot to say about the second part. <laughs> After I ex explain this from the Scripture, what it means to, be, um, to have hair as white as wool, right, or as white like wool, because that's often misconstrued to relate to hair texture and not hair color. And it clearly relates to hair color. So in Revelation chapter one, there is a two verse description of Christ, which in the King James version reads from verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And, and first, let me say that we shouldn't even take this entire passage literally. This is making an allegory which, um, which portrays the return of Christ and his appearance at his return in, in some sort of mystical spectacle of, of a fashion like is some sort of authority figure that can cannot be ignored because he's so much more um, fantastic than common men. So he's peculiar and, and per pictured as being much more noble. And, and God the Father, Christ being the physical representation of God the Father, would that this fits that picture of, of a dignified but very powerful elderly man 
and, and that's how I read this. His hairs were white like wool and as white as snow. There is a common feature of the Hebrew language, which is employed throughout the Bible. It's called parallelism. And the word parallelism describes a repetitive reference to or description of the same phenomenon in different ways. So where we read that his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Both phrases, white like wool and white as snow, are such a parallelism by which we have a greater understanding of what is being described. So it cannot be taken to mean that his hair had the texture of wool, or otherwise it would also have to have had the texture of snow. And in the sun, he wouldn't have any hair at all, right? So it only means to describe the whiteness of his hair in two different ways. And it makes no comment on the texture. It's speaking about how white his hair is. We have the same thing also in Isaiah chapter 1, where we read of the sins of Israel, a promise which was fulfilled in Christ. And it says... Yahweh God speaking to the children of Israel, though your sins be as scarlet, which is red, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So the sins aren't going to be like furry or, or rough like wool is. The, the sins are going to be white like wool is. Because here we have another such parallelism. And scarlet is red, like crimson, which is a slightly different shade of red, while something as white as snow would also appear as wool, meaning as white as wool. So it's That's the, cleansing the sins, right? Yes, cleansing the sins, making us white, because what's pure and holy in Scripture is always described as being white. And, and what's evil and, and dangerous is described as being black or dark, or, or what's like the state of mourning when, when something bad happens, like the, the life of Job, and, and he was black, or, or Solomon, because he was disgraced when he was black. So black and white are opposites in Scripture, Everything good and holy and sanctified and pure is described as white. Yeah, and um, also, if you just read that uh, verse carefully, it says his head and his hairs were white. So his head has to be white as well. So clearly this is a white person with white hair. As you said, you know, the white shows that he's incredibly wise. And if you go a little <laughs> bit further, the... It says that his feet are like fine brass. And, you know, that describes basically just the tanned skin, right? I mean, sometimes we do just say a golden tan, but if you really look at the color gold, like a yellow, we don't really go that color. We actually go the color of brass, which is kind of a little bit darker. And you can even, if you go, I don't know, to a tanning salon, there are actually brass tans. That's what they call it, right? 
Right, absolutely. And, and I believe that we discussed in our last presentation the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, it's also called, where Solomon is described by his wife as having um, legs that like a belly of ivory and legs like pillars of marble, which if you look at marble, it, it's um, white or light gray and it has, it, it's not always, but it's very often white or light gray and it has these um, veins of blue and green running through it or sometimes red and, and that's what the, the legs of a white man would look like if they were well muscled. You, you would be able to see the veins, or maybe if he had varicose veins, right? You would be able to see the, the, the white skin and the veins running through and the, the underlying colors of the ruddiness running through his legs, and it would look like marble. They could be compared to marble. So Solomon's feet were also described as being of brass because the feet, in, in the Hebrew mode of dress, the feet were exposed to the sun. And, and, and the feet and the ankles would be like brass because they would be heavily suntanned as compared and to the what, rest of the body. Sorry. What about the eyes, Bill? I mean, I've seen some people try and insist that the flame of fire, that's referring to the blue bit of the flame, right? You know, you know, flames are usually yellow and then in the middle. I think that's getting, you know, a bit far-fetched. It just seems to be these bright, flamey eyes, right? Like yellow, white. Uh, that's what John s seems to see. Well, well, right. And and let me say that the ancient Hebrews did not exist in a vacuum. And and the the apostles, the revelation, it, it's written in Greek. It's transmitted to a primarily a Greek-speaking world. As John was in. It, he was in Greek, a Greek land when he wrote a revelation. He had lived in Ephesus or, or in exile on Patmos, either one, for quite some time, for quite a few years. And before that, in Antioch, which was a Greek city in northern Syria, it, it's, John was in a Greco-Roman environment. And we have to imagine that terms were used that common Greeks could understand because the gospel was a message primarily to them. If, if you look at, as we discussed last week, all these cities where the seven churches were, were Greek cities. All the cities of Paul's epistles were Greek or Greek-speaking cities. The, the Romans, while Latin was their official language, they were all bilingual. Greek was the common language in Italy, and the Galatians, while they were Scythians and, and from the Assyrian captivities and didn't have a Greek heritage, they were nevertheless Hellenized and wrote in Greek. And, and even Strabo and, and other ancient historians said that the Scythians, the Galatahi, never used their own language for writing. They wrote in Greek, so they understood Greek. So, we have to imagine that the similes and metaphors that were being used were also understood by common Greeks. The allegories being used were understood by common Greeks. 
And with this presentation, I will include a scholarly document from the University of Massachusetts, and it's, it's Greek color theory and the four elements. And it explains how the ancient Greek philosophers um, debated how color was transmitted to the eye and how they perceived color and why they perceived color the way they did. And they actually postulated, and this document pretty much spells this out on page three, they postulated that color was transmitted to the eye by some sort of fire. And they also recognized that the eye gleams and the eye had translucence. So they compared, and there were famous similes in Greek philosophy long before Christ had compared the, the, the eye as the lamp of the body, the Greeks had, in their philosophies, compared the eye to a lamp. As the lamp radiates rays of light, so does the eye, which contains eternal fire shut up within it. That's how the ancient Greeks saw the eye. That's how they try to understand why the eye looks as it does, why it's so translucent, why it accepts and processes light into color. So that's how they try to understand it. So the language of the New Testament in relation to the eye is practically the same language that was used by the, the um, philosophers of ancient Greece in order to try to understand the eye. And once again, all of this is a white construct. You don't find this in, in other languages, other cultures that, that are non-white, not that I've ever seen. And do you think the, um, you know, the voice as the sound of many waters, that it's got this like power in his voice, like it's almost echoing, like Yahweh himself is speaking, do you think that's what it's kind of indicating right and and that that um allegory is used elsewhere in scripture and sometimes the voice is instead described as thunder so yes i i believe that um that that's what it's projecting we see the um voice and i heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of great thunder. And that's in Revelation chapter 14. But John understood what was being said in Revelation 19. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. So we can imagine that if one voice alone was as the voice of many waters, that John would be making an allegory that it was a great and powerful voice and, and perhaps it echoed all over the place and, and sounded like a great multitude even though it was Christ alone who is speaking. And when Christ speaks in, in, um, to John in Revelation chapter 2, of course John understands what he's saying. Yeah, and, and this should fully um, put the nail on the coffin that, um, you know, any description is completely trashed um, that Jesus was white. Uh, sorry, that Jesus was black. 
that um, they don't they really don't have a leg to stand on on any of these verses at all no absolutely not he he wasn't black he wasn't a brown arab and and all of that's quite ridiculous and and we will see that further on um one more thing i want to say about the greeks and color is the greeks did not they may have perceived colors and seen them the way we see them but they didn't describe them the way we describe them they just didn't and if you look at and and i believe and i don't remember right it could have been aristotle but I think it was Plato who, um, there's a famous passage or a semi-famous passage, it, it's people that look into this that recognize the passage that I believe is in Plato that defines the different types of eye color to the ancient Greeks. And as far as I remember the passage, because I, I have it somewhere at Christogenia, I've discussed it somewhere at Christogenia, somewhere in my writings, but... 1200 podcasts i just couldn't find it in in preparation for this program i apologize for that but the ancient greeks they had very um odd descriptions of of eye color or of eye appearance and i believe this had just as much to do with eye appearance as it did with color they could call that they could describe somebody's eyes as glaucops, which is glaucus, and, and the word ops is really face, and that is generally interpreted as being gray-eyed or blue-eyed. Now, there was another word for blue that meant a, a true dark blue, and we get our word cayenne from that, C-Y-A-N. And in English, cayenne has taken on a, a meaning of a different shade, but... Kiwanis in Greek is a, a, like a darker, true blue enamel color, right? They never use that to describe eyes, that word Kiwanis. Never describe blue-eyed as far as I've ever seen. I've never heard of it, and it's not found in the lexicons, right? So Glaucops is believed to describe people with gray or blue eyes, but it literally seems to mean gray more than blue. We get our word glaucoma from that, glauc, glaucus. So the next way that the Greeks described eye color or eye appearance was to call somebody goat-eyed. And I believe that was a hegelops, goat-eyed. And I don't know if that means yellow eyes or not. I doubt it. I've always thought it probably refers to somebody with green eyes, but I really can't be sure of that. And then there was merops, which simply meant dark-eyed, or somebody with what we whites call a dark countenance, or maybe what Germans called a brun, or, or a brunette, somebody with, with, with um, darker brown eyes and, and brown hair, dark brown hair, would be a brunette in German. So it's possible that merops would be the equivalent of a German brunette, but once again, it, it really can't be told exactly the scope, the, the entire scope of the reference. It's difficult to tell. But that's how the Greeks perceived eye color. Those three terms are, are the three most common ones I've seen. The, um, there were different, other different ideas of, of the Greek perception of color, the way they expressed it. Like Homer, it, if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer made constant references to the wine-dark sea. 
comparing the color of the sea to the color of wine. Now, we perceive wine as purple, I, I believe, and I've never seen a purple sea. So it, it's the way they perceive colors and described it is different than the way we do for some strange reasons. But that, that's really interesting because, um, you know, really bright blue eyes is actually quite rare. It is generally a, a, a shade of um, blue and gray. And, you know, now and then you do get people with those completely, you know, luminous, bright blue eyes. But, you know, you can see that they would generalize it as just blue or gray, a shade of that. And, you know, dark eyes, anyone with some kind of brown or dark eyes. So, so there is kind of a logic there, I guess. Right, absolutely. And, and that, that's, I don't know why they didn't use Kiwanis, maybe because they thought Kiwanis was dark blue. And, and even though I have eyes that could be described as bright blue and, and not really as gray, and my wife has eyes that, that, that sometimes look blue, but sometimes look gray, maybe that was more common. I, I couldn't describe my own eyes as Kiwanis because they're not that, what, like, too blue that we see in a pair of brand new blue jeans or something, right? That's not the color they are. So they would be closer to a gray or a blue gray than to blue jeans, that, that, um, that bright blue. As far as, um, as far as color and the world of the Bible, in the first century. There's a Christian work of the, I'm sorry, the second century. There's a Christian work of the second century, which was named and was considered as canon by at least, it, it was named the Shepherd of Hermas, and it was considered as canon, canonical scripture, by at least several of the earliest Christian writers called the Church Fathers. The Shepherd of Hermas dated to at least as early as the first half of the second century. And that dating is basically historically indisputable because of the works in which it is mentioned, the dating of the works in which it is mentioned. Irenaeus mentioned it. Now, Irenaeus was writing from about 160 to 180 AD, and he was referring to the Shepherd of Hermas. So we know it existed before the time of Irenaeus, right? And, and other writers as well. So it dated to at least as early as the first half of the second century. And it may have been written even earlier. We can't prove it was written earlier, but it very well may have been. So the following paragraph is from the edition of the shepherd or the pastor of Hermas. A shepherd is, a pastor is properly a shepherd, so some people translate it as pastor. And this edition is found in the Antinicene Fathers, which is a collection of all of the earliest Christian writings by Robertson Donaldson. It was published in the, I believe in the late 19th century, or, or the early 20th. This is from the third book and it's titled Similitudes, and it's from the ninth similitude, titled The Great Mysteries in the Building of the Militant and Triumphant Church, and this is chapter 19, and, and I'm not going to cite the whole thing. I'm only going to cite the first four or five lines of it. 
and it said, From the first mountain, which was black, and the mountains here are allegories for people. From the first mountain, which was black, they that believed are the following, apostates and blasphemers against the Lord, and betrayers of the servants of God. To these, repentance is not open, but death lies before them. And on this account also, they are black, for their race is a lawless one. And from the second mountain, which was bare, they who believed are the following, hypocrites and teachers of wickedness. And these, accordingly, are like the former, not having any fruits of righteousness. For as their mountain was destitute of fruit, so also such men have a name indeed, but are empty of faith, and there is no fruit in them. They indeed have repentance in their power, if they repent quickly. But if they are slow in doing so, they shall die along with the former. So here it is seen that one who is black was perceived as having, as not having any ability or any hope of repentance. They were also seen as being completely lawless. Just as we discussed earlier in a series of presentations, in Solomon's time, it was considered a disgrace to be black or a disgrace to be swarthy, as we saw in the opening chapter of his Song of Songs. So it is clear that from this alone, that early Christians could not even have conceived of the thought of a black Christ or black apostles or even of black Christians. And it shows you that the, you know, Christianity was gradually um, changed to a universal doctrine quite early on, right? These, te these teaching would be removed. And uh, obviously, um, they, they wouldn't accept this because they would say this isn't universal, and that's probably why it was removed. Well, well right. And, and the, shep the Shepherd of Hermas was considered canon by several of the early church fathers that the church was supposed to follow but never really did, right? They never followed the apostles. They never even followed the early church fathers, even though the early church fathers, the earliest which, which survive, Clement of Rome, that there's not a lot of um, commentary on race and Christianity in, in the surviving epistles of Clement of Rome, which are not many. But Irenaeus and Justin Martyr both date to the second half of the second century AD, or about a hundred years after Paul of Tarsus, and already they're teaching replacement theology, that already they've gotten their theology from, from the Jews of Judea by that time, because true original apostolic Christianity was persecuted out of existence in the late first and early second centuries, and works like the surviving works that are very clear on a race issue, the Wisdom of Solomon and the Shepherd of Hermas were kicked aside for the universal church. They were kicked aside. It's amazing yeah, and, um, that they still survive. Just quickly, survived. as we said, 
Oh, sorry, Bill. I'm, I'm, I just wanted to add, it's amazing that they still survive. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's possible that if they did write anything on the race issue, those ones were removed. And all we have left is, um, you know, the ones that semi-agree. But I just wanted to say, we, we mentioned it in the Weissman series, that Justin Martyr did have something on the race of devils and a race of men. And he described the devils as beasts. But he seemed to believe that they could be converted. And, you know, you can see the kind of transition there. And after that, that was gone forever. There was only one race of men. Right. By the fourth century, by, by the time of Eusebius of Caesarea, and, and even by the time of Origen, I believe, in, in the um, early third century, and Tertullian, it, it, the, the, um, there was only one race of man. But if you look at this passage from the Shepherd of Hermas, and then you compare it to a passage I often cite from Diodorus Siculus on the nature of the black Ethiopians as being completely savage and inhospitable and contrary to anything that he considered man. And he was talking specifically about black Ethiopians as compared to other civilized Ethiopians he had described. It, it, the attitude in the Shepherd of Hermas and, and in the pagan writer, Diodorus Siculus, are the same attitude. This is a, let, let's go back in time a little bit to, um, to the ancient Hebrew language, or the more ancient Hebrew language. In Hebrew, the word Arab as a verb, and you could find this right in Strong's Concordance, means to grow dark. But referring to people, where it cannot really lose its meaning as a verb, because it's the same word used as an adjective, it came to mean mixed. When white people mix with other races, the result is never white, but rather it is something darker than white. The first place in scripture where it appears is in reference, where, where it appears used in reference to people is to the mixed multitude that followed the Israelites out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, where that word Ereb appears, it's translated as mixed in that passage of a multitude of people. If the verb means to grow dark and it's describing a mixed multitude or a growing dark multitude. It's referring to people of mixed race. The word Arab does not mean to make lighter. As the verb was used to describe the evening sky as the sun went down, that it was Ereb, that it was growing dark. So the existence of this term and its use in this manner describing people and its clear meaning in other uses proves that the Israelites were originally white or they would never even have had this term in their vocabulary referring to people. And um, Egypt, you can see that they already were starting to crumble, that race mixing was becoming prevalent if um, a mixed multitude was able to follow them out of Egypt. 
Yes, somewhere in Christagenia, I, I actually have a discussion of that. In the Middle Kingdom, Egypt was becoming an empire, and there were actually that there was actually a prophet in Egypt at the time of the Middle Kingdom, and his name and this is you could find this on Google. His name is Ipuwer. It's spelled I P U W E R. And sometimes it's IPU-WER. And Ipuwer was complaining to the pharaohs that aliens were becoming people. There is other myths in, in ancient Egypt where in the earliest literature of Egypt, the, the literature of the Old Kingdom, only Egyptians are people. And the legend of Ipuwer states that only Egyptians were considered people. All others were not even people, meaning, meaning that that doesn't mean they weren't a person. It simply means that they had no rights of citizenship, that they had no rights at all within Egypt. They were outcasts. You couldn't intermarry with them. The Egyptians wanted nothing to do with them. And that was the device by which that the cultural device by which they preserved their own race. But when Egypt became powerful, like all nations that become powerful, they became an empire. And after a couple of hundred years in the Middle Kingdom, they started to accept these people of other races and nations as people. They went universal, just like Rome went universal, just like Britain and, and all of Europe and, and America have gone universal in modern times. In America, when America, when the United States of America was founded in the Constitution, slaves, which were all Negroes, slaves were not people. They weren't people, so they didn't have the, the entitlements that citizens do. That was forced on us in, in, with, with the Civil War and, and the 14th Amendment that was forced on us, but it was not the design and intent of the founders who sought to establish a republic for them and their posterity, which means their descendants, and protect their race from outside influences. So slaves could not be people. And, and because of that um, desire to protect one, one's own race and culture, Blacks were not seen as people. It's that simple. They can't be if you want to preserve your own race and culture. Aliens, China, Chinamen, they can't be people. And that's the way the Egyptians protected themselves. But by the Middle Kingdom, they were singing a new song. That they were saying that there's actually a, a famous ancient inscription containing a poem describing how Amon, the, the high supreme god of the Egyptians, had created every color of man, which was something that the early Egyptians did not believe. <laughs> so they, that just like the churches today, saying red, yellow, black, and brown, or, or red, yellow, brown, and white, or however it goes, it, it's, um, it, it's the same phenomenon repeated in history all over again. That, that's pulling us down to the level of Africans just as it pulled ancient Egypt down to the level of Africans. And Egypt has been a cesspool for the last 
at, at least 1500 years, but really Egypt's decline was, it took a lot longer. Egypt's decline started at the time of the Exodus and Egypt was overrun by Nubians in, in the seventh century BC. It recovered from that, but the blood of the people never recovered from it. And its recovery was short-lived because the Macedonians took Egypt over. And the Egypt of Hellenist, the Hellenistic period was Greek. It wasn't Egyptian at all. The Egyptians, the native Egyptians were pushed out of the way to make room for the Macedonians who then emulated the ancient Egyptians. Yeah, and time and time again, we see that the gospel of Christ is the only way to weed them out, right? Um, I'm sure um, we don't really know about these ancient cultures if some whites tried to do it, but, but there's no way to remove all this foreign blood, only uh, the gospel of Christ that everyone has to follow, uh, you know, the law, and you have to remove other people, not associate with them. Well, well right, and, and this same thing happened in... The, the same thing that happened in Egypt, that breakdown in, in, in the race barrier, which caused a breakdown in the culture and, and a transformation of the culture, which led to a, a long period of stagnation and decadence, and the nation never rose out of it. The Egyptians never rose out of that because late Egypt was Macedonian. It was Greek. It wasn't Egypt at all. So, so since the... Um, since the Arab conquest of Egypt and the rise of Islam, what has Egypt been? Nothing but a barren wasteland waiting for Englishmen to come and, and the French and the Germans to come and start digging in the ground looking for what Egypt used to be. And, and Egypt went right to the pits of hell when it became diversified. Well, ultimately, this same thing happened in, in the land which we now know as Arabia. Because that term Arab began to be used to describe the land, which we still know as Arabia, with its inhabitants. But that didn't happen until the time of Solomon. The term Arabia, describing the lands to the east of, of ancient Israel, does not appear in scripture until 1 Kings chapter 10, which is the time of the reign of Solomon. Before that time, the individual regions in Arabia were referred to according to the names of the distinct tribes which dwelt there. Moab and Ammon and the Amalekites, who were Canaanites, and the Midianites, who were descendants of Abraham, and, and Joktan and and Havilah, and, and Havilah was also a descendant of Abraham from Keturah, and, and other regions, Sheba, that they were all distinct. But at the time of Solomon, things were pretty mixed up. All of those races were, were, were intermingling with the Canaanites and, and the Moabites and the Edomites. That they, it, it, started to be, it started to be called Arabia. That's why because the distinct tribes which dwelt there, the lines between them were becoming more and more obscure. But with the time of Solomon, it becomes apparent, by the time of Solomon, it becomes apparent that those tribes had in some degree 
become so mixed with one another that peoples became hard to distinguish individually, that certain tribes, not all of them, but the names of certain tribes ceased to be used, and the name Arabia came to be used instead. Now, people might dismiss this as being conjectural, but it is fully manifested in the historic record if you examine the scriptures and, and see when the last time words such as Havilah came to be used. Because the, the term Havilah, the whole land of Havilah, Genesis chapter 2. Now, Havilah, I'm sorry, he was the son of Cush. And the land of Havilah is described in Genesis chapter 25. And again in 1 Samuel chapter 15. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the people that were in Havilah weren't the descendants of Havilah. They were the descendants of Canaan. They were Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah. And you don't see, except in the, chrono in, in the genealogy, the ancient genealogy repeated in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, you do not see the term Havilah again. It disappears from the land that became known as Arabia. And Havilah is not the only term that disappeared. Many of the tribes ceased to be mentioned in the historical accounts, and the whole place was just called Arabia. So that they became all mixed together. It's, even with that, even with that, most Arabs still had an appearance that was more or less white, and their own art reveals that. There is Nabatahian art, sculpture and in, in sculpture and, and other types of art, like reliefs in stone, that describes Nabatahians that, that pictures them as fully white. You, you would think that, that those sculptures could have come out of Mesopotamia or, or even Scythia. If you look at the, Nab the way the Nabataeans were drawing themselves up to the Hellenistic period. But that doesn't mean they weren't mixed. They, they were Canaanites. The original Canaanites were white. And, and they were mixed with Canaanites and Edomites, the Nabataeans, descendants of Ishmael. So, even with that, as their own art reveals, the Arabs were still at least white-looking until the Islamic conquests. And with the Islamic conquests came the introduction of black African slaves into Arabia in large numbers. And they used those black Africans as slaves and as soldiers. So that, that's all I have to say about that. But the very existence of the word, Ereb, and, and the way it describes people, that proves the Israelites were white. Beyond doubt. Yeah, and also... Sorry. The fact that um, the, those Arab places got worse and worse, the darker they got, you know, the, if anything, that shows you once again that white is good and black is evil, right? I mean, even these, these mixed people, their uh, civilization declines, but the darker it gets, it gets even worse and worse, right? Well, well absolutely. And, and even all of North Africa was originally white, and, and the people who live there now aren't black, that there's some sort of Arab brown 
because they imported black slaves from Africa and kept mixing with them. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, um, if you look at Spain, how um, they were overrun um, quite early on by Islam, and, you know, it kind of slumps, but then they managed to gradually push them out from the north, <laughs> right? And then very quickly, with this white Christian population at the north, they very quickly got this Spain empire going. And then, um, you know, Portugal as well. And then once they started bringing slaves back in, it started to slump straight back down. If anything, it shows you that the white Christians are, you know, the civilization of the world. Well, well, absolutely. Uh, and and the, um, the, the Moors, the Moors had already been Arabized. It, it's by the time that they entered Spain. I mean, the Moors were originally white. And there are remnants of, of whites there today that the um, that that look every bit as Irish as a lot of Irishmen. Yet you, you wouldn't know if they were mixed or not, but they look white, freckle-faced, blonde, Irish. It, it's um, that they're, they're basically outcasts, though. That that they that they're. That they're like hillbillies. I'm trying to search for the for the word that describes these people, and and it's just lost on me. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So I, what I meant to say is that the, you know Spain at one time was incredibly powerful. You know, it had an empire, but they could only do that once they pushed the the Arabs back down. Only could then could they get it going. It shows you that Islam could never build an empire. You know, these Arab people. No, no, they never could. That they they did not hold their the empire they tried to build they didn't hold it very long it it didn't stay to, together or cohesive very long they started competing with one another that they were regionalizing by the eighth, eighth or ninth centuries I I mean they built their empire in the seventh century and by the eighth or ninth century there were already different pockets of powerful Arabs who were ruling over different areas of the Arab world and they never became united again until the coming of the Turks and and even then when when the Turks were fully united it wasn't for long no only when the um, Jews start you know drumming the uh, drums of war to invade whitey and white countries only then will they unite right <laughs> it's always them who are able to unite them that the um the Turks the Turks were, were able to make the incursions which they did because of the apathy of most Europeans towards the Byzantine Empire, which was being invaded and destroyed by the Turks. And, and what, what was a German king to care? And in fact, when the Normans, went, the, the Nor I forget which crusade it was, but the Normans had um, taken part in... in, in one of the crusades i believe in the 13th century or 14th century and instead of going to jerusalem they looted byzantium they looted constantinople <laughs> so yeah and you can see then he was relying on turkish mercenaries to like repel them and you know when you're doing that that's the beginning of the end right even the french had, had um which king was it I believe it was King Francis I of France 
made alliances with the Turks and allowed them to use ports, allowed them free use of port cities on the south of France because he thought that they would assist him in his own wars against the Holy Roman Empire and, and the German kings, that con the Habsburgs, that, that controlled it. The sack of Constantinople happened in 1204 in the Fourth Crusade. And it was Crusader armies, and, and it was primarily Normans, that looted and destroyed Constantinople. So they were supposed to, that they, they were supposed to go against the, um, to, against the Turks and, who had occupied the Holy Land. They looted Constantinople. Yeah, and you can see, um, you know, time and time again, that's always how the um, other races gain ground when we turn on each other, unfortunately. It happens so over and over in history. Well, well, that's our race has always been divided against itself, but that that's also a curse that that is um, put on King David when he sinned and took the wife of Uriah, and the the punishment for that was that the sword would not fail from his house. That, that he would be punished for that. The sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. And, and Uriah the Hittite is actually, it should be translated Uriah the fearsome because that word Hittite, while it described the descendants of Heth, it also described somebody who was fearsome. And, and Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty warriors, so he would be fearsome just being able to fill that role. So that, that was part of the curse against David that the sword shall never depart from thine house. So David had the promise that the, the, um, his descendants would always rule over the children of Israel, but on the other hand... The sword shall never depart from thine house. Those kings and princes that rule over the children of Israel would always be making war against each other. And, and that's true all the way through to modern times that the royal families of Europe have always made war against one another and hurt themselves. They, they damaged their own race, not only because they were killing that their own people off as cannon fodder, but because when these other races began attacking Europe, Europe always being divided, the other races made great incursions into Europe. And, and if it weren't for the Poles and the Lithuanians and, and the Austrians and the Serbs, then Germany would probably, they'd all be flying carpets right now. They'd all be Islam. They'd all be Muslims right now. But the Poles had fought. Martin Luther discussed the wars between the Poles and, and the Muslims, the Turks. And, and that's in the 1500s. The Turks were able to have Vienna under siege, I believe as late as 1783, the last siege of, of Vienna by the Turks. I'm sorry, 1683. 1683 is only 300 years ago. Islam has been in a constant state of war against Christianity. 
It has never ended. It started with the Arabs in, in Spain and Sicily and southern Italy and parts of Greece and the Byzantine Empire, the portions of the Byzantine Empire in North Africa and in the Middle East and Near East were all taken from the Byzantines. They were all Christian lands. They were all white Christian lands taken from the from white Christian nations and, and the Byzantine Empire by the Arabs. And when the Arabs ran out of steam and couldn't advance any further successfully, they played politics and, and the Byzantines and the Arabs played politics with one another and the Byzantines were making war against the Khazars and, and all of a sudden, I, I mean, I can't say it's all of a sudden, it's probably Jews working behind the scenes for centuries. All of a sudden, the, the Turks started accepting Islam as their religion and they started invading the Byzantine Empire in numbers too great for the Byzantines to handle anymore. So, I mean, we're going to discuss this a, a little later on again, so I don't want to get too deep into it. But it, it's, they were overwhelmed. But the Turks and the Arabs, they have Islam. Islam forbids distinctions between race. It forbids it explicitly. Anybody who is a Muslim can marry anybody else who is a Muslim. And with the introduction of black African slaves into Arabia in large numbers and the conversion of those slaves into Muslims so that they could be useful to the Arabs, they began to intermarry and freely, without restriction. That's caused, that really caused Arabia to become dark, far darker than it ever was in, in Solomon's time. Yeah, and they'll have their 10 wives, so very quickly, you know, 40, 50 children, just in a few centuries, they're going to just be overrun. Well, I think we've really digressed and gotten ahead of ourselves, but I believe yeah. you want to talk about the ancient art. Absolutely. And the first thing, and, and this goes back to Hebrew times, the only um, prominent figure in art surviving from the Hebrews are the cherubs. And a lot of people, because of the Roman Catholic depictions, think a cherub is a little fat baby with wings. That's not true. A cherub is basically a sphinx. And more exactly, a sphinx is a variation on a cherub. This is from a page of Christogenia titled Cherubs Are Sphinxes. And I have the artwork there to demonstrate what I'm about to say, but I will include more imagery with this presentation. While the Sphinx is a watered-down version of the cherub, the cherub was a sphinx-like creature which had the head of a man and the wings of an eagle and the forebody of a lion and the rear body of a bull. And these are the same four symbols described as being a part of the throne of Yahweh in both the Revelation and the opening chapters of Ezekiel. They are also the same four symbols of the standards of the leading tribes of Israel situated around the tabernacle in the wilderness. Judah represented by a lion 
Ephraim represented by a bull, Dan represented by the wings of an eagle, and Reuben with the head of the man, because Reuben was the eldest firstborn son of Jacob. So those four symbols can all be seen in the descriptions and allegories used for those tribes in the scriptures. So these symbols were prominent in Israelite culture, and that includes the Phoenician culture because the Phoenicians, the ancient Phoenicians of the golden age of Phoenicia were Israelites. But the cherub was also prominent in ancient Egypt and in Assyria. But unlike the Hebrews, the Egyptians only used the body of a the lion. They left out the part about the bull. And the Assyrians only used the body of a bull. They left out the part with the lion. So an Assyrian cherub was a bull with the head of a man and the wings of an eagle. The Egyptian cherub was a lion with the head of a man, which usually had the wings of an eagle. The sphinx doesn't, or, or it can't be perceived, as far as I'm concerned, that it had the wings of an eagle. But many cherubs had been found in Egyptian tombs that do have the head of a man, the body of a lion, and the wings of an eagle. So, in a lot of Egyptian art, the cherub began to be drawn upright as a man standing with wings of an eagle and sometimes with a body of animal features, a lion perhaps. So, so the Egyptians started drawing these upright cherubs and eventually from that I believe we had this, the, the symbol of the phoenix which is just a round orb with the wings of an eagle and, and other variations. That's besides the point. The Greeks also had a cherub that the fi a figure of Greek art and, and myth and legend. But the Greeks made a woman out of the cherub. A, a, the head of a woman what, with the body of a lion and the wings of an eagle. But these cherubs, they're not found among other races. Aside from think, cherubs. I, I'm sorry. Sorry, I, think, uh, I was going to say, do you think like griffins and stuff come from that? You know, half eagle, half lion? It's just... Uh, Greek mythology that originates from uh, the Hebrews. And it's yes, it's speculated that the griffin, which is really um, before the griffin is found in Greek mythology, it is found in the ancient religion of the Assyrians and Persians, and among the Scythians. And the griffin symbol ha has been found by archaeologists carved griffins throughout. Central Europe or, or in places in Central Europe and in the north in, in what was anciently called Scythia. So the griffin is um, what wasn't original with the Greeks. It existed in Mesopotamia long before. And it can be speculated that the griffin is a variation on the cherub. It can be speculated. Or it may have developed... Um, from the same ancient legends but developed at the same time as the cherub it, it's only speculation which one came first right that the cherub does seem to be extremely ancient however so these cherubs were featured prominently they're first seen in genesis chapter 3 of course is their first mention 
and they were featured prominently atop the Ark of the Covenant and in the Temple of Solomon. That they were engraved in, in gold into the walls of the Temple of Solomon. But aside from cherubs, ancient Israelites were forbidden from making graven images. So ancient Israelites did not leave much art because the Bible forbids it. But Jews of late of the late classical or early medieval periods broke that commandment and they did leave us art which is important to our understanding of ancient Judea but first let me say that the cherubs cherubs are found among the commonly among artifacts from Assyria from Arabia and especially in Egypt but aside from that cherubs have been discovered by archaeologists Many different cherubs, examples of cherubs in Spain, in Iberia, in Italy, and other places in southern Europe. I can't recall one cherub being discovered in sub-Saharan Africa or among the Negro black races or, or in China. I, I mean, cherubs and griffins did wander into Central Asia, but they weren't produced by other races. They weren't produced by the Chinese. Not that I've ever seen. So, Jews of late classical or the early medieval periods broke the commandments about graven images and began to make graven images and decorate their synagogues and their homes with them. So, we have significant pieces of art which have been found in homes and synagogues in ancient Syria and in Galilee. And one famous mosaic is from Hukok. Hukok, H-U-K-K-O-K, I think in one place in the Bible it's only spelled H-U-K-O-K. Hukok is an ancient city of the tribe of Naphtali in Galilee. And it's mentioned twice in the Bible with two different spellings. There is a striking mosaic which was discovered as a feature of a floor in an ancient synagogue so it was certainly not a christian creation you can't say that converted white christians created this mosaic since it was in the floor of an ancient synagogue where christians weren't allowed to even enter that the ancient judeans wouldn't have anything to do with christians so you can't say this was a Christian creation. It was said to depict an event of the, it is said to, it's believed to depict an event of the fourth century BC, which is recorded by Flavius Josephus in his Antiquities, when the Judean high priest met outside the gates of Jerusalem with Alexander the Great, whereupon Alexander was escorted by the priests into the city. Now, other interpretations of this mosaic date the event which is depicted to a somewhat later time when the Maccabees were confronting the Seleucid kings of Syria in the 2nd century BC. In any case, whether this depicts the, the high priest with Alexander the Great or the high priest standing against the Seleucid kings of Syria, in any event, the mosaic was created for a synagogue of Jews in the 4th century AD, and it depicts Israelites standing on the left with their high priest, 
against a group of Greek soldiers standing on the right behind their own general or ruler. And the Israelites depicted in this mosaic are so white, their skin tone, their hair texture, the color of their hair, they are so white that they appear to be even whiter than the Greeks in the mosaic. They have light brown or blonde hair. I will supply links to this artwork in my notes for, for this presentation at Christagenia. They were so white that they looked whiter than the Greeks. And the hair and beard of the high priest was as white as wool. And he looked like an, any elderly white gentleman that might be found in Northern Europe today. There's another notable mosaic, which is often referred to as the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. This was discovered in Sephorus, which is another city of Galilee. But Sephorus was not mentioned by name in scripture, or at least by that name. The mosaic was found on the floor of a Roman-style villa, believed to date to the 3rd century AD. It features depictions of pagan Greek idols such as Pan and Heracles and several depictions of Dionysius, the Greek god, as well as naked young men, presumably Cupids. Cupid would have been portrayed not as a naked little baby with wings, but as a naked young man. But it also features a large depiction, and, and all of these characters are, are white in the descriptions, except for maybe Pan, who I think was half goat. But this mosaic also features a large depiction of a very fair white woman who has been dubbed, for the reason of her appearance, as the Mona Lisa of Galilee, because her appearance was quite striking. So while it cannot be said who the woman was, and it cannot be said who owned the villa, the country estate home, Sephorus was just a few miles north of ancient Nazareth. And it wasn't really a Roman city, it was a Judean city. And according to some historical sources, it was one of the towns to where the religious leaders of the Jews had relocated after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Now, aside from that, it, it's apparent that this is a Jewish villa, but it may not be a Jewish villa. It might have been a pagan Roman villa. But aside from that, another important mosaic discovered at Sephorus is from the floor of a 5th century synagogue, a synagogue believed to be destroyed in the 5th century. The, the actual mosaic may have been created earlier. And it features a depiction from an account in the Bible called the Binding of Isaac. And in this portion of the mosaic which survived, because the whole thing didn't survive, there was more to it, it features two fair-skinned, fair-haired white men rep who represent the patriarch Isaac and his father Abraham. So these three mosaics, which depict the most ancient Israelites and their patriarchs, as being entirely white and European-looking are important because they are found in Jewish settings, and at least two of them 
were most likely made by and for Jews because they're found in synagogues. And being as late as the 4th century AD when they were constructed, but before the Jews began to be ostracized from the Byzantine Empire, they are some of the best estimations of how the Jews of late antiquity saw themselves. Just as Flavius Josephus had written in his Antiquities in Book 12 that except for the circumcision they would appear to be Greeks, in these mosaics it is very clear that they appear in that manner to be Greeks because if it were not for the Hebrew style of clothing and the Hebrew accounts which the mosaic represents, you wouldn't know that these people were Jews. You would think that they were just other Greeks or Romans in these mosaics, other whites. That's how they look. I don't know if you have any response to that, anything to add to that? Yeah, it just shows you it was a different world back then. Uh, and, you know, again, repeating that Moses looked like an Egyptian, it's the same thing. The Egyptians were once white, and now that whole region is dark and Arabized. So that's why there's confusion. People imagine, oh, it must have always been like that. Well, well right. And, and even so-called historians and genetic science scientists today imagine that it must have always been like that but that is because of the agenda which the Jews have always had against our race they don't want us to know the truth they have obfuscated history since time immemorial next to me in importance are the paintings found in the third through the fifth century catacombs of ancient Rome and there's a 4th or 5th century image. Yet, you know, it's almost impossible to date a mosaic by itself. You can estimate the age, like these mosaics that were found in Hukak and in Sephoris. What we can tell from history and archaeology, basically when the synagogues or buildings that they were found in were destroyed, or fell into decay or, dis decay or disuse. And archaeologists have ways of estimating age by strata or, or by how deep that the object is found down in the dirt. And different um, wars and burnings of cities and cycles of destruction leave strata from different ages just as um, the ancient palaces of the Assyrians were found deep under the mounds of ancient Assyria. You could tell that dust collected atop, atop the ruins for many centuries in an arid climate and, and had created a mound out of what used to be a destroyed city. It, it became overgrown with vegetation and cycles of seasons and dead vegetation and dust and dirt collect on, on these ancient ruins and cover them up, right? So that's how they tell because you can't really, um, you can't even, even if we trusted carbon dating, you can't carbon date a rock. 
They have other ways of dating rock by testing for certain gases and things like that within the rock, but those aren't very reliable either. So we, we really only have historical accounts and statements in, in ancient histories to really judge how old some of these things are. But the catacombs, we know that the catacombs are from the times of the persecutions. That the catacombs were used during the times of the persecutions of Christianity. So even here, where some of these catacombs are esteemed to be from the 5th centuries, that, that's possible, but it's really no longer likely since the Edict of Toleration spread through Rome and, and the time of um, Constantine. So there were some pagan emperors who still persecuted Christianity to a degree after Constantine, but for the most part, Christianity was accepted. The catacombs existed because the pagan Romans had... had um, had burned their, their, their cadavers. They, they practiced create, cremation. Only Jews and Christians buried their dead in this period. So the Romans had, had um, laws against burial and designated Jewish burial grounds. It was unlawful to bury anybody in the city walls, within the city walls. So the Christians would dig out these catacombs and, and dig out into the ground that these caves or found naturally existing caves. I can't be sure which is true. And in some cases it may have been both. But some of these underground caves called catacombs are very ornate. And, and they're, they're almost like cities of, of dead people underground in, in like a mausoleum type of burial scheme or atmosphere. And, and some of them are very ornate and very well de decorated. So that these that these catacombs are actually pretty amazing, and they were there's catacombs right under the Vatican, so so that's where the Christians buried their dead because they were persecuted, and they couldn't bury their dead lawfully in ancient Rome. They had to do it surreptitiously, so they dug these catacombs. So where it says that some of these catacomb paintings date to the 5th century, I doubt that they are that late. I, I really do. Because of the history of the time, I would think that the catacomb paintings are from the 3rd and 4th centuries. But there's no way to date a painting unless you can have some understanding of the history and the circumstances under which the painting were made. So modern archaeologists who often don't know much about history, they date these paintings to the 4th and 5th century. I would think they date to the 3rd and early 4th. But that's immaterial. These are early depictions of Christ and the apostles by early Christians. And there is a, what's determined as a 4th or 5th century image of Christ and his apostles found in a burial chamber in the catacombs of St. Domitilla in Italy. And it's a scene which depicts Christ sitting with six men on each side, all of whom are depicted as fair-skinned and white, mostly with light brown or blondish hair, which was cut in a traditional Roman style, short hair. Men had short hair at the time. 
Christ probably had short hair. They never had the long flowing hair that we see in the medieval paintings. Some of them have short beards. Now, there's another painting that's pretty distinct that's believed to be older than this, and it was recently discovered. I believe it was discovered in 2010, and, and that's images in a branch of the catacombs of St. Tecla, which is right near St. Paul's Basilica and just outside the walls of ancient Rome. And these were evidently painted at the end of the, by the end of the 4th century, or maybe the start of the 5th, according to the archaeologists. I would say they had to be painted in the 4th century. But these include depictions of the apostles, Peter, Andrew, John, and Paul. And all of them, along with some portraits of other men who are unidentified, all of them depict white men with Roman-style haircuts. And some of them have short, trimmed beards. So all of this catacomb art and all of the Byzantine descriptions in art, either of themselves or of Christ and his apostles, all of them are depictions of white men. But just as significant is the artwork of the earliest surviving Ethiopian churches. And there's a church, and I will link to the artwork in, in this presentation, called Mariam Quiat, where it, it dates to the 6th century in Ethiopia, and it depicts Christ and his apostles as all being white. But some of them are depicted, and, and I think it's three or four of, of the individuals, are depicted as having a sort of what we would call Arabic appearance. But that might be expected for 6th century Ethiopia. The others are all perfectly white. And that's Ethiopia in the 6th century. Now there's a lot of other Ethiopian church art that has to be dismissed because it doesn't date to a period earlier than the Jesuits who had gone into Ethiopia in, in, in the 14th and 15th centuries looking to convert Ethiopians to the Catholic Church. So that's a different story. And I wouldn't give, that, that church art is just medieval European, even though in most of that art, Christ and his apostles are depicted as white. But in some of the art from the late medieval period, after the 1400s, by Ethiopians themselves, then you see a black Christ and black apostles. But the earliest art depicts white Christ and white apostles, and not black ones. Yeah, so the idea that everything was whitewashed, and um, originally he was black, and then we made him white, it's, it's the other way around. He was always white, and now it's being blackwashed. So it's the complete opposite, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. If the earliest um, Ethiopian church art does not depict Christ and his apostles as black, but as white, or even a couple of them as Arabs and the rest of them as white, how could you say that they were originally black if even the Ethiopians depicted them as, as non-blacks or as whites? That, that's it, it's so ridiculous that this modern view of a dark brown Arab or black Christ, which has been made prominent 
mostly by the Jews and trumpeted by search engines at Google, where, where even Tertullian, the, the Roman, he was a Roman living in Carthage. He wasn't an African, he was a Roman living in Carthage. He's called a Carthaginian or an African simply because Carthage was a Roman city on the continent of Africa. But the Greeks did not consider that Africa. The Greeks considered it Libya. And ancient Libya to the Greeks, that they, that they never depicted them as black. <coughs> so history is being blackwashed. It's being blackwashed by blacks and Jews in, in, in concert with one another. This whole idea of a, a black Palestine or a black Arabia is absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, and those um, that picture of the four apostles is interesting that they um, depict uh, John as a youth. You know, it just shows a bit of realism that they really did think about. You know, the pictures that Peter, Andrew, and John there. Uh, sorry, Peter, Andrew, and Paul were like fully grown men, and John's this young, really young man, which adds up with um, reality that he was a lot younger than the other apostles. Yes, and that's clear from the scriptures that John was younger. All right, should, should we briefly mention the letters describing Christ? Uh, you know, they don't have as much credibility as uh, the ones you just mentioned, but they're definitely interesting, right? Right. The, the suppose, I, I think there's a few letters circulating. on. I don't know if you want to read them. You're free to read them if you have copies of them. I don't keep copies of them. And, and there's a reason for that. I, I mean, it's not that they're garbage to me. The letters describing Christ... I don't give as much credit to them as the catacomb art or the mosaics of Galilee, but that's because their provenance is impossible to prove. And they, were very, they very likely date to the early centuries of Roman Christianity. But it can't be proven that they're older than that. It can't be proven that they're original. And that's simply because they're not mentioned in earlier literature. But they do, however, and this is why they're important, they indicate how Christians of the time, Christians of early Rome, would have expected Christ to have looked. And that cannot be taken away from those letters. Yes, yeah, so there's generally um, three letters. The first one is from the Arco volume, and this is supposedly um, official court documents from the days of Christ where... Um, I don't know if it was rabbis who went around and interviewed him and interviewed his family, and it gives a kind of description. Uh, so I could briefly read the first one, and it says, I asked him to describe this person to me, said I might know him if I should meet him. And he said, if you ever met him, that's Christ, you would know him. While he is nothing but a man, there is something about him that distinguishes him from every other man. He is the picture of his mother, so that be Mary, only he has not a smooth round face. His hair is a little more golden than her, and though it is much from sunburn as anything else. He is tall and his shoulders are a little drooped. His visage is thin and of a swarthy complexion, though this is from his exposure to the sun. His eyes are large and a soft blue and rather dull and heavy. The... Uh, Judea Nazarite is convinced that he is the Messiah of the world, and this is the same person that was born of the Virgin in Bethlehem some 26 years before, and, and that's where it cuts off. But, you know, that clearly shows that he was white, sunburned, he had um, 
you know, golden hair, blue eyes, at least that's what it describes. Well, well, right. Is there anything you want to say, or I could just go on to the other two? Right. The Arco volume doesn't have as much credibility as the other two, as being an early Christian document. It, it's um, a highly controversial work, and since I've never really studied the volume itself, I really can't comment on it any more than that. But some people do claim that, that it's a collection of rabbinical writings. It, it, the volume itself claims to be a series of reports from Jewish and pagan sources contemporary with Christ and, and from rabbinical and Talmudic sources. So it, it's, sometimes it's dismissed outright and sometimes it's given some credibility as being medieval but it's hard to tell and i haven't had a chance to study it on my own or or even a desire to so it it's um but it wasn't published in in and known in the english world until the 19th century okay and there's another two um so this one is from a Roman official, some kind of um, government person called Lentulus. Uh, I read that on some of the letters where you find it, they in call him the Roman consul. But, but it's been shown the older ones didn't have that. People just added that. And that's why it's often challenged as people look in Roman history and records and say no such Roman consul existed. But nevertheless, it seems to be some kind of official, and he wrote a letter to the emperor uh, of the condemned man, Jesus of Nazareth. And it says, um, you know, Lentulus, uh, it did, the old one didn't originally say the governor of the Jerusalemites. To the Roman Senate and people greetings, there has appeared in our times, and there still lives a man of great power, virtue, called Jesus Christ. This people called him prophet of truth, his disciple, son of God. He raises the dead and heals infirmites. He is a man of medium size. He has a venerable aspects, and his beholders can both fear and love him. His hair is the color of ripe hazelnut. So a hazelnut would be brown, but then as it gets ripe in the sun, it starts to go yellow. So that would indicate either um, light brown hair or blonde hair, straight down to the ears, but below the ears, wavy and curly, with a blush and bright reflection flowing about over his shoulders. It is parted in two on the top of the head after the pattern of the Nazarenes. His brow is smooth and very cheerful, with a face without wrinkle or spot, embellished by a slightly reddish complexion. His mo nose and mouth are faultless, his beard is abundant and of the colour of his hair, not long, but divided at the chin. His aspect is simple and mature, his eyes are changeable and bright, he is terrible in his reprimands, sweet and immovable in his admonitions, cheerful without loss of gravity. He was never known to laugh, but often to weep. His stature is straight, his hands and arms beautiful to behold, his conversation is grace, grave, infrequent and modest. He is the most beautiful amongst the children of men. So, yeah, there's another one. Uh, it's interesting that he brought up the Nazarenes, the pattern of the Nazarenes. There. Do you think there's anything to that? It, it's well, well, no, I don't believe that Christ was a Nazarene in that sense. I, I don't think there's anything to that. That there is um, no reason to consider Christ as having been a Nazarene. 
he would have never been able to cut his hair or or um or or cut his fingernails for that matter. So yeah, true. I I don't and and that there's there's also that there's contention over the letter to Lentulus. I I don't doubt that it's older than the 15th century. I believe it is, but the first manuscripts of the letter of Lentulus are not older than the 15th century. The first manuscripts that that were discovered, but there's reasons for that. There's cultural reasons for that in medieval Europe, that the um. Western scribes, most of them, most of the West wasn't even fully Christianized until the 10th and 11th century. And even though Rome had a lot of documents in the Vatican Library from the medieval period, many documents weren't available to Western scholars until after the fall of Byzantium or until the middle of the 15th century when a lot of those documents, from what I understand, were because the Byzantines were in serious trouble, a lot of those documents had made their way to the West one way or another. But there's many ancient classics of which the earliest manuscripts we have date to the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. And, and that includes classics like Strabo, where, where all the earlier ones were lost. And, and from the 14th, 15th centuries, that, that's when Western scribes, with, with the, the Reformation and, and other political circumstances, where Western scribes had really been able to freely inquire into and, and begin to duplicate ancient documents. So it doesn't alarm me that the earliest copy of a particular manuscript it is from the 15th century. I would appreciate something that could be proven to be earlier. And, and in all of my own exegetical work in scripture, I always try to work from what I esteem to be the earliest possible manuscripts of scripture. But we just don't have that luxury all the time be, because of the fractured history and, and all of the wars and, and destructions that, that we've that our European and, and Israelite people have incurred upon ourselves, we don't have that luxury all the time. So that there's no master library anywhere where every document was stored as, as soon as it was created. We just don't have that luxury. It'd be a wonder if we did, if we were people always at peace. Yeah, exactly. Perhaps and then, one day um, we'll have it all This on is an the iPad. last one. I think this one's probably the best out of all of them. It's from Pontius Pilate, uh, you know, the, the governor who um, handed Christ over to be executed. Uh, and it's written to Tiberius Caesar, who, who was the actual emperor of the time. And it says, a young man appeared in Galilee preaching with humble unction, a new law in the name of God that had sent him. At first I was apprehensive that his design was to stir up the people against the Romans. But my fears were soon dispelled. Jesus of Nazareth spoke rather as a friend of the Romans than of the Judeans. One day I observed in the midst of a group of a people, a young man who was leaning against a tree. 
calmly addressing the multitude i was told it was jesus this i could easily have suspected so great was the difference between him and those who were listening to him his golden colored hair and beard gave him the appearance of a celestial aspect he appeared to be about 30 years of age never have i seen a sweeter or more sincere countenance what a contrast between him and his bearers with their black beards and tawny complexions unwilling to interrupt him by my presence i continued to walk by it but signified to my secretary to join the group and listen. Later, my secretary reported that never had they seen in the works of all the philosophers anything that compared to the teachings of Jesus. He told me that Jesus was neither seditious nor rebellious, so we extended to him our protection. And um, it goes on a little bit more. I don't, I don't want to read the whole thing. But, um, yeah, it's, essentially it's the same thing that he has this, you know, blondish hair he's a white man and um i don't know if that adds up with scripture that um you know polite polite offered some kind of protection that helped uh the judeans not uh execute him until the time was right right <coughs> do you think there's anything to that um well well that's difficult it's not to really say, mentioned right? in scripture that that's difficult to say it's not mentioned in scripture it it would be a subject of the politics in Jerusalem, would Pilate even think about executing Christ before he was brought to, brought to trial in Jerusalem? Well, Pilate didn't even want to execute Christ at all. And, and that's very clear from Scripture. So how would Pilate know the time was right? That this seems instead to be the opinion of somebody looking back at this from a historical aspect from, from a later time so whether this is legitimate or not it's still important in several aspects because there are copies of this letter of Pilate in the British Museum today and in the in the Museum of the Louvre in, in Paris so and I probably mispronounced that but people know what I wouldn't know what I mean. So, so these copies, the, the, the copy in Paris is in Greek, and that's evidently a translation because the original copies are in Syriac, and they're in the British Museum, and they date to the, they're esteemed to date from the 6th or 7th century. So here we have People writing in Aramaic or Syriac, which is somewhere in, in Palestine or Arabia or Mesopotamia, because they're, they're the lands where Syriac was primarily written at this time, and they're describing Christ. Whether these are Pilate's words or not, 6th or 7th century Syrians are descri describing Christ as a white man with blonde hair. Not as an Arab, a dark brown, black-haired Arab, the way the Jews are portraying Christ today and claiming that's from reproductions, which it's certainly a lie. It's not from any viable reproductions. Yeah, once again, it shows you that it's just a modern conception that you know, the uh, Israelites were not white. Uh, time and time again, this is always what you find. Well, 
I, I, I don't, yeah, you know, for, for a, an, an ancient letter to be making these descriptions, wh whether or not the letter is legitimate, it, it reflects how people of the period of the letter saw him at the time. And they didn't see Christ as a Negro. So that's about all I have to say about that. Yeah, okay. And, and then there was just one more point that um, Christ chose, or, you know, Yahweh came, chose to come down as a man of the race of Judah from the 12 tribes. And as we've already explained, uh, all, all of the Israelites were white. We can clearly see that with David and Solomon. So, so he would have to have been of the same race and same, you know, look just like them, essentially. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, if Christ was of the, of, of the race of Judah, he had to look just like the, the Old Testament figures did. I mean, David was ruddy. And, and in the Song of Solomon, Solomon was clearly white. He thought it was a disgrace to be suntanned, to be swarthy. So he didn't want the women to look at him. I'm, I'm looking again at the... Um, the letter of Pontius Pilate to Tiberius Caesar it didn't have the full physical description I thought it had in it, but CatholicCulture.org esteems it to be from the fourth century. It even though the reports I saw from the British Museum esteem it to be from the seventh century or the sixth century. It really doesn't matter because it 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 was a. Um, a letter written in Syriac, and and the way it describes Christ, he certainly wasn't black or swarthy. So, I don't know if you have anything to say about that. <laughs> well, there's even a few comments uh, that I just read that he it says he looks swarthy, but only from the sunburn. Right. Clearly showing that he was white, but Absolutely. just slightly sunburned from constantly walking around preaching the gospel. You know, around um, you know Galilee and Jerusalem. Okay, wonderful. We can um, move on to the the Middle East itself, and yet yeah, you know archaeologists and geneticists today that they always, or at least usually, because not all archaeologists do this. And I really believe that the earlier archaeologists of, of the 18th and 19th centuries, that they had a much better understanding of classical history than modern archaeologists. And especially geneticists who just assume that because the people in the Middle East today are generally swarthy Arabic types, that they've always looked that way. And, and if you that there was advertising. I remember 23andMe had advertising and that they one of their sales pitches was for you to find out whether you descended from Luke, the apostle, of, of whom there's no record at all of him ever having children or a family, right? <laughs> or, or if you descended from Marie Antoinette. And, and they, they would make that that judgment that you descended from Luke the Apostle, or he was a relative of yours, if you had some Arab genes in you, and, and from North Lebanon or, or Syria, and they would actually include that information 
in their results of their tests. And, and that was in her advertising literature and several pe people from the results of their, their tests, one being Eli James, had bragged about being a relative of Luke the Apostle. Well, the people at 23andMe thought that Luke the Apostle was a dark Arab Syrian, like the modern Syrians often are. So if you, if you make that boast today from results given by 23andMe, you're basically admitting that you're part Arab. And, and that's what E.Y. James was doing, but he's too stupid to know it. So, so that, that's, that they base their ideas on genetics about the modern populations of, of these various lands. So if you're part Arab you, you, and, and European, that they might tell you that you're Southern Italian or Sicilian, uh, taking it for granted that the Southern Italians and Sicilians are the original Italians. You might even be called Roman. Who knows? Who knows? that? That's the way they think. And I'm just trying to pull up examples explaining how they think. That's how they think. If you're North African, if you're in North African before the Islamic conquest, to, to someone who's studied history, that means you're white and probably even blonde or fair-haired. But if you're a North African, and, and it's the Berbers that I was trying to think of. The Berbers are a remnant of ancient white Africans who are at, at least mostly white-looking and, and European-looking to this very day. So that's the name I couldn't come up with earlier this evening. So, so these geneticists, that they, they're really screwed up and, and their results are absolutely unreliable because of that their opinions being based not in history but in the, the current population. And, and all these populations being mixed, they're going to have genes from a, a mixed gene pool that represents multiple races. Or no race at all, really. What when you take a, a, a white and, and a black and you mate them, what you end up with is a third type of race, which has random chromosomes and genes from both races. Yeah, and there's um you know, generally two ways of looking at it. Um if you, you know, allegedly share <laughs> DNA with someone uh in the Middle East, uh they'll claim that you're part Arab. But but there's also another way that the Arab is part white. I mean, but they will never bring that possibility up, right? I mean, if you shared an ancestor and, um, you know, a white man had two sons and one went to Europe and married a white person and that's where you come from and the other married an Arab and stayed in, you know, that area that gradually got more and more Arab, Arabized, you could share a white DNA, but you'd be pure and they would be mixed, but they never ever consider that possibility. They insist, oh no, it means you're part mixed. And that's what people need to realize. Well, well right, and, and that's totally evident when you look at the, it, it's to me that we, we don't have the original Adamic DNA, right? We don't have the DNA of Jacob and, and his 12 sons. We don't have it, we're never going to have it. Um, it's difficult to tell with any precision exactly what 
Israelite or Adamic DNA should look like. Because we've even had um, speciation among us, uh, um, with our fellow whites. So you have like the R1A haplogroup, the R1B haplogroup. So I consider genetic testing for that and other reasons to be completely unreliable at any detailed level. But to me, the haplogroups themselves of, of your, your, both your um, mitochondrial DNA and your, your cellular DNA, your, your paternal DNA, are very important. So haplogroup R1A, when you look at it, is um, very thinly distributed in Western and Northern Europe, but it's very heavy especially in, in Germany and parts of Central Europe, and it goes all the way down into Syria and Iraq and, and all the way over practically to Mongolia, the, the R1A haplogroup. And, and then you look at R1B, and that's more heavy in Western Europe and not as heavy in, in Germany and Central Europe and into Asia. But even R1B is present throughout parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, along the North African coast, and, and th throughout Southeast Asia, not Southeast Asia, I'm sorry, South Central Asia and, and South Central Europe, all and and all throughout Mesopotamia, Palestine, Turkey, you find this R1B, even though its heaviest concentrations are, are in um, parts of Spain and France and Western Germany and Ireland and Scotland and Wales are the heaviest concentrations. And, and then it's not as heavy in England and, and other Scandinavia and, and other white areas. It's traditionally white in modern times. So, so both R1A and R1B are scattered throughout all these Arab lands. But does that make an, an Arab a European? Or does it make a European an Arab? Of, of course not. It's ridiculous to think so. And, and there are other um, haplogroups that, that you'll find that, that are generally found among whites, but distribute, have a distribution through Africa and, and the Arab lands. And that's because of the, the race mixing which occurred in those places in ancient times. But that doesn't mean that you're an Arab because you have that haplogroup. That's ridiculous. And it's the same concept with many other aspects of our genetics. It's the same concept as you were just describing. Yeah, but, and if you understand that they all originate from fallen angels mixing with beasts and mixing with Adamites, they're going to have some little strands of our DNA in them. That's what you would expect. And we're looking at it the completely wrong way, but since the Jews run all these uh, genetic websites and companies, you're never going to get the truth out of them, are you? Well, well, right. We can't trust them. We can't trust them to interpret the data correctly. I wouldn't trust any of them, even if they were trying to do it right. With, with their attitudes about race and, and geography, 
I can't trust them to do it right. Even if they, that, even if I thought they were sincere, they would be wrong because of how they look at anthropology through, through that Jewish lens and, and through their own propaganda. Historically, it is quite clear that the entire Middle East was white and the darkening process which began to take place in the days of King Solomon, what, when the, the word Arabia first appeared, had progressed slowly until the Islamic conquest. And with the, with the Islamic conquest, it was greatly accelerated. But as for genetics, you will not see modern science trace Europeans back to the Middle East with any remarkable certainty, although sometimes the roots of Europeans in eastern Anatolia or the Near East is identified. But the first problem is that scientists judge what is Middle Eastern according to who lives there today. The tribes of Seljuk Turks and the Canaanite bastards all jumbled together with one or more of several other races, white, black, whatever, oriental, the Mongol presence. So that being said, there are genetic studies which reveal that the Middle East used to be white like Europe. The following couple of paragraphs is from an article from Christogenia titled Dumbing Down on David Duke. Because you have, yeah, you have clowns, and I'm going to call him a clown. It, it doesn't buy. Tell him to his face. I think he's a clown. And there are clowns like David Duke who insist that ancient Egypt was white, that ancient Persia was white, that ancient Assyria was white. And, and when you tell them that ancient Israel was white, they deny it. They refuse to hear it. It's in, an incredible disconnect. So there's an article, and, and it's entitled Genome-Wide Diversity in the Levant Reveals Recent Structuring by Culture. And I wouldn't call it a recent structuring by culture, but it is a recent structuring. And in other words, what they're saying is that the genomic the genetic, let me call it genetic, the genetic diversity in the Levant, which is basically Israel and Lebanon and, and part of Syria, the Levant, that area on, on the, um, the, the shelf off the Mediterranean Sea, right? That's the Levant, basically. There's genetic diversity there, which reveals a recent structuring, meaning that those people had recently come to resemble and to have the characteristics that they have today. But they weren't always there. That's what the title is saying. And this is, and, and it wasn't culture, it was an invasion of other races that did it, but they're attributing it to culture. This is from the genetic section of the Public Library of Science, or plosgenetics.org and the article was credited to a team of geneticists and published in 2013 and I will link a copy of this both a copy at the original website and a copy at Christogenia and at that time I said 
While we do not require articles such as this to prove our position at Christagenia on the history of the Levant or the Middle and Near East, this particular article does help to show that our thesis has academic support even in the field of genetics. And picking on David Duke, I said David Duke likes to claim a knowledge of genetics as the basis for his refutation of Christian identity, and we are in the midst of showing that he is wrong in every aspect of his claims. We are not going to read the highly technical article, however, we will read the author's own summary of the article. That's the important part to us anyway, which is found in the published report as it describes our interest and demonstrates our case. So the authors themselves wrote this, and they said population stratification, meaning as we have different layers called stratification in archaeology, and those different layers dig different types of stuff different types of ancient artifacts out of the ground and and in some places the top layer might be Persian and you dig under that and it's ancient Sumerian or something so that's population stratification is happens the same way where an original population is the oldest and the next population is mixed with something and and then there's a population mixed with something else right that's what they're describing when they say population stratification. So they say population stratification caused by non-random mating between groups of the same species. Now they consider all men of any race to be the same species. Is often due to geographical distances leading to physical separation followed by genetic drift of allele frequencies in each group. And that they're talking about this as if it's a bunch of um, cells in a petri dish that just kind of float around and drift from place to place, right? And, and really, that they're not talking about it in real human historical terms where this happens because one, a tribe of one race conquers a tribe of another race, rapes all the women, and keeps the children as their own. That's what really happens. So, population stratification caused by non-random mating between groups of the same species is often due to geographical distances leading to physical separation followed by genetic drift of allele frequencies in each group. That's all bullshit for meaning one tribe conquers another and they all race mix. In humans, Population structures are also often driven by geographical barriers or distances. However, humans might also be structured by abstract factors such as culture, a consequence of their reasoning and self-awareness. Notice they don't say anything about invasion and rape by an outside tribe. And then it says, Religion in particular is one of the unusual conceptual factors that can drive human population structures. This is incredibly naive, but that's okay because it's Jewish. I mean that this whole field has been molded by Jewish thinking. This study explores the Levant, a region flanked by the Middle East and Europe, where individual and population relationships 
are still strongly influenced by religion. They're leaving the race factor out of it. Where we show that religious affiliation had a strong impact on the genomes of the Levantines, the people that live in the Levant today. In particular, conversion of the religion's populations to Islam appears to have introduced major rearrangements in population's relations through admixture with culturally similar but geographically remote populations. In other words, they're talking about the invasions of Turks and Arabs, but they're not describing it that way. And, and blacks as well, because the Arabs introduced blacks into their armies and populations. And they continue and say, leading to genetic similarities, this admixture with culturally similar, because they had all adopted Islam, but geographically remote populations, leading to genetic similarities between remarkably distant populations like Jordanians, Moroccans, and Yemenis. Well, that's because Arabs and Turks had invaded all those ancient places and, and raped all the women and raised the children as their own. It continues. Conversely, other populations like Christians and Druze became genetically isolated in the new cultural environment. We reconstructed the genetic structure of the Levantines and found that a pre-Islamic expansion, Levant, meaning before it was conquered by Arabs and Turks, was more genetically similar to Europeans than to Middle Easterners. And there you have it. When you break this down into plain English, the, the Levant, where Israel, ancient Israel was, and parts of Syria and Lebanon, was white. It was more genetically similar to Europeans than to Middle Easterners. And they don't really want to admit that the differences are precisely racial. They only want to admit that this happened because of culture and religion. And that's exactly what you'd expect to find, that um, for the most part it was white European with a few uh, you know, Canaanites amongst us. But, but it's astonishing that they try to argue that it was the culture, right? That uh, Because we changed religion, <laughs> our skin color changed. Well, well, right. And your skin color doesn't change because you change your religion. But even in this article, while they admit that the Levant was white, they won't say that about the Arabs and, and the other Middle Easterners because the Middle East is, it, it includes the, the Levant and Arabia and, and all, all the way up to the Euphrates River where, where the Middle East ends and the Near East begins with Mesopotamia and Persia, right? That's called the Near East historically. So the Middle East is kind of between Greece and, and the Near East, right? And that's all, it, that's all it refers to, is that geographic area of, of Syria, Palestine, Arabia. So they, they still want to, to leave room that the other Middle Easterners, meaning the Arabs to the east of the Levant, were brown. But not even they were originally brown. They were all originally white. They would need even more genetic studies. But just the presence of R1A and R1B in those areas, to me, 
It is enough to make us think. Why is that so? So this being said, even the Jewish newspaper Haaretz recently, and, and Haaretz is a virulently pro-Jewish newspaper, there's no doubt about it. It recently published news of another news study that was just published, I think last year, under the title, Jews and Arabs Share Genetic Link to Ancient Canaanites. But identity Christians have always known that Jews were actually descended from the accursed Canaanites. We've always said that. We don't, we have the historical citations to prove it. We have the Bible which proves it. We don't really need that study to know that Jews are Canaanites. But now the geneticists are, are finally making that admission. And the Jews, like these, this Jewish newspaper Haaretz, they've embraced it. Yeah, it makes you wonder, will they eventually just accept it openly when uh, there's a very small amount of whites left? Well, well, absolutely. That's absolutely true. And I don't know, you probably want to leave this recording here. I, I mean, we have a 16th point lined up to discuss, but it, it's we've already run over two hours, and I think this is probably sufficient for now. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um yeah, and and then um, we can go on to the next point next week. That's no problem about all the um, early church fathers and Christian history. Absolutely, and 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 after that, we what well, we have a few other things lined up that I think that that will agree with as well. So, what well, with your next points? Thank you for being here. Yep. No worries. Thanks for having me again, Bill. That was brilliant. Uh, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you, Bill. Praise Yahweh. Good night.